0: Hello and welcome to the TBG Real Estate Podcast, where we connect you with some of the
1: most innovative and exciting real estate leaders today. We will show you that there are numerous paths to a successful career in the real estate industry, and that some of your greatest missteps can be turned into your greatest triumphs. Without further ado, here's the head of TBG Real Estate, Chris Papa. All right, folks, welcome to this episode of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. I am your host, chris papa and today we have a very special guest mr milton pratt jr milton is the co-head of affordable development at the michaels organization how you doing milton
0: doing just fine uh staying safe like everyone uh during this pandemic
1: yes sir i appreciate you joining us uh where are you located right now
0: I'm I'm at home. Uh, we're alternating in and out of the office, so I'm at home this week, and next week I'll be back in our corporate office on the beautiful waterfront in Camden, New Jersey.
1: Oh, okay. I just read an article about something about Camden. It was a positive article about Camden, which was nice because uh, Camden's I'm,
0: I'm, on the rise. Uh, that's that's part of the reason why, as a company, we made a decision to move our business into Camden, New Jersey. Uh, it's, it's a great city. It's got great leadership right now. So many wonderful opportunities, particularly in the affordable space, but, uh, a number of businesses are moving in. We've joined Subaru America. Uh, Sixers have their training camp there just right outside of our, our door, American Waterworks. So there, there's a, a, a lot of activity along the Camden waterfront and we have a better view of Philadelphia than anybody in Philadelphia. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I grew up in Northern New Jersey, so New Jersey's my, where my heart is. I'm in California right now. It's where I live, but uh, my heart's in New Jersey and Camden. I always loved Camden. I, always, uh, I almost moved to Philadelphia after I went to Rutgers in New Brunswick um, and I almost moved to Philadelphia right after school. So I definitely am um, familiar with Camden, that area down there. Um, so it's great that you guys are part of the revitalization because um, this is a great city. Um, so. Can you tell us about the Michaels organization for those who don't know? I mean, it's a huge organization with a lot of different uh, divisions, I would say. Right. Can you tell us yeah. a little about what you do there and like the organization as a whole, please?
0: Yeah, um, I'll tell you about the organization. Michaels, a, a fi- almost a 50 year old real estate development company, full service real estate development. We're vertically integrated. Uh, as, I, as, we, as you mentioned, I, I co-head and am executive vice president for the affordable development group. That's one of our larger groups. Uh, It's our core business. We've been around for a number of years. I always like to tell folks that we're still a family owned business and that we don't have a big corporation standing behind us. We're we're very much a debt free business. Uh, There still is a Michael. There's Michael Levitt, uh, who who still is actively involved in in the business every single day. I wouldn't be surprised if Mike called me and said, how's things going on one of our projects that we're working on? Uh, and we also have uh, a student housing, military housing, and then we've got management companies associated with those three individual real estate sectors. Uh, in addition, we've got a small construction company that operates uh, across the country, but does probably 35 percent of our work. And we've uh, got a relationship with uh, Brocadia Equity, where we are uh, co-owners of Brocadia Equity platform business.
1: Oh wow. Okay. And so your experience has been mainly throughout your career in the affordable space, correct?
0: Correct. That, that, that's all I know. And that's all I love. And that's my passion. Uh, since the day I got out of Westchester university, I started working close to the affordable business. I was working in community development. And then from that point forward, just one thing after another kept me in housing. I've been on both the public sector, the private sector, I worked for a nonprofit over the years as well. But but at the end of the day, that, that's all I know. I, I don't try to figure out how to build student housing. We have other people that are smarter in that area. <laughs> I, I just try to figure out how we build the best affordable housing in the country. And so as one of the thought leaders in the industry, we're always out there thinking of new ways to do to do our business.
1: Now, I'm a recruiter, and you might not know this, but there's a lot of young people who want to be the next Milton Pratt Jr., or striving to be striving to be where you are. Um, can you take us back back in time to you know when you were growing up? Where did where did you have a passion for real estate? Did you have, I mean, where did that come from? And and kind of can you take us through like the progression of your career? Or just even just from as a kid, like how did you get involved with with real estate?
0: Yeah, you know, I I really didn't have a passion for real estate. Both of my parents were were civil servants. They worked many years for the city of Philadelphia. And, and I remember when I graduated college, my, my mother and father said, well, you just bought a car, so you better have a job. And if you don't have one, <laughs> I'm going to pay for that car. So I, I went out and I didn't have a job. I had a decent internship with the borough of Norristown. And at the end of the summer, the, the f- person I was working for said to me, well, what are you going to do? And I said, I think I'm going to go to work at Wawa or a convenience store. i <laughs> yeah. to pay my car payment when I move back home. And they said, well, you can hang around a little bit longer if you want. And that turned into, I think I was there about 18 months or so. And it just gave me a good, a good understanding of community development more than anything else. They let me rotate around the, the city's community development office. And I worked over with the code enforcement folks and I worked with the folks that did planning and some of the entitlements. And from there, I, I joined the Philadelphia Housing Authority and I had stints at Philadelphia Housing Authority in, in Chester City. And that really gave me a lot of the backstory on how projects, how, how affordable projects are put together, because back then there really wasn't a tax credit. It was really just you borrow money based on your rents that you could leverage. And so I was the guy at a housing authority that you went to to essentially figure out what your rents were going to be and get a long term housing subsidy contract. So from there, it just gave me a passion for helping to to create things and be a maker. And I guess even before I knew what Lifting Lives was as it relates to the Michaels organization, I I was doing good Mm. and and it gave me a great sense of uh, meaning when I, I recall going to a groundbreaking or a ribbon cutting or something like that. And I said, wow, this is what I helped create. I didn't have a full service responsibility for the project, But I was part of the team providing the subsidy, and I was sort of, when you think about a a public-private partnership, I was the public side of the partnership at at that moment. And from there, I just grew into working for National Equity Fund and LISC, working on a a large redevelopment project. And then uh, from there, I I also was regional administrator for the Mid-Atlantic region uh, with HUD. I was a Bush 43 appointee. Had a great opportunity at HUD to learn a lot of things about how the HUD operation worked, and you know that's when I kind of realized that HUD's in almost every aspect of real estate, whether it's through FHA multifamily lending or whether it's through the work that they do in providing subsidy to cities and counties for CDBG funding or for home funding or for the very important Section Eight program, and and I just kept growing my knowledge base. And my relationship base as well, which is critical to anybody in real estate. Uh, and then I came to the Michaels organization, and uh, I've been very happy with that choice. Uh, I had a choice when I was leaving HUD, but this was the right place for for me and my family and my lifestyle. It wasn't just close to my home, but it's working with great people in a great organization, and it, it really speaks to the the fact that you know we've got long term leadership and john o'donnell and mark morgan and they really give people like me and my co-head of the affordable business king crawford opportunity to grow the business responsibly we all make mistakes but they understand it when we do and we talk about it and we learn lessons from it
1: so you were on the public side um in the community development and that you think that's a great starting point for somebody who wants to get into development like
0: it it, it absolutely is uh Understanding if, if you want to get into the affordable business, because that's what I know best, of course, mm-hmm. um, understanding what happens on the, the public side. Oftentimes I am called upon just to help explain how a public program works. Like right now we're doing a lot of RAD work. And, I, you know, I guess in 2015 or 13, 13 or 15, when the RAD program came out, I immediately started to drink the Kool Aid. I, mm-hmm. I felt like this was a, a good program. Uh, all of our housing authority partners that we were working with had you know mixed feelings about it, and, and for good reasons. I, I understood why they had mixed feelings, but I, within our organization, I said this is something that is going to be a growth opportunity for us. And so it took us a little time to figure it out, but once we did, you know, I, I I'm sort of the guy that has the, the base of knowledge and I, I won't pretend to say, I know everything about the RAD program. I'm smart enough to know what I don't know. I hire good consultants and, and good team members to work with uh, when I don't know these things.
1: Now you're, what is, people say, I mean, all over the time, I want to get into the development. Oh, development sounds cool. Like what ex- exactly does a developer do? Like what is your, what is your day to day like job?
0: Uh, you know, as a developer and versus being in the capacity that I'm in as someone that manages developers, yeah. I'll start by talking about a developer. Uh, a developer has to be a problem solver. Every single day, a developer wakes up and somebody's thrown a new problem on their lap related to a project they're working on. whether it's something to do with the schedule, there's been a change in regulation interest rates went down or went up and how does this affect what what you're doing in the transaction and so every time every morning every couple of days there's something that changes in a transaction and you got to be the person to sort of push it back in the bubble when push it back in the box or otherwise it'll just squish out of your fingers <laughs> and, and and it happens to the best of us uh, and then you, you got to wrestle all those problems to the mat and at some point you got to you know, get a one, two, three pin to, to, to get to get the project over the finish line. But but it really is about having an ability to solve problems uh, more than anything else. And it's also having an ability to communicate effectively with a very large and diverse team that is required to to get a, get a project done. So, you know, as a developer, you've got an architect, you've got engineers, you've got general contractors. You got two or three lawyers that work for you. You've got HUD consultants that do specialty work for you. you. You've got somebody that does just a rent analysis for you. So you got title work to deal with. So you got all these various factions and, and entities and, 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 and consultants working for you as the point man on your project. And so it's incumbent upon you to really be a leader. You got to listen to the advice they give you. It's not always right. But you got to listen to it. You got to interpret it. You got to be able to manage all kinds of risk associated with the projects that, that you're trying to take through a development pipeline. I always like to tell people when they talk about, well, you, you developers are making all this money and it's so easy. It just looks easy. And I say, you know, if it was easy, would everybody be doing it. That's an old saying, but it's absolutely true for, for every one of these projects that we wrestle and drag over the finish line. There's probably four more back there that aren't going to go anywhere. And we spent several hundred thousand dollars and we spent time and opportunity costs trying to figure out those projects.
1: And what do you where do you develop? Like, how do you know As you can't just pick any spot to be an affordable housing developer? Oh, I'll put this place and make it affordable. Like, how do you know where to go to, to do a project?
0: Um, certainly in our case, we have people in a variety of cities. So we've got regional offices in Washington, of course, our Camden office covers the Northeast, but we've got regional office in Washington, Atlanta, uh, Chicago, Denver, Honolulu, Puerto Rico, and I'd say Los Angeles. So we, we've got you know uh, offices all around, and oh, Denver, I think. We've got offices all around the country. And so it, it starts by being local more than anything else. It, it's just like uh, when you want to have the best food, you've got to have the best local ingredients. And, and so I don't know, sitting here in New Jersey, I don't know how to do business in Chicago. But wow. our folks in Chicago know how to do business there. They know the business community there. They know all the consultants there. And they they understand the the, the small P politics. But to, to go back to your original question, which is how do you know where to go? In the affordable business, for the most part, you got to chase the money. You got to chase you know, the opportunity. So, if the state of Illinois says we want to only develop 14 story buildings that are, you know, 200 units and are in suburban towns, very sadly, that's exactly where we're going to go. We're going to go to every suburban town, knock on every single door, figure out how we put together a project. If they say through their tax credit QAP, qualified allocation plan, that, you know, in Denver, they want to develop housing that is only near transportation corridors like the subway or the bus system or something like that, then we're going to go and track every bus stop or or every uh, intermodal stop and figure out what vacant land is around there because that's where they're saying that the priority is, you know, and that's when you realize that affordable housing is a solution driven, oh, my apologies, is a solution driven Uh, business. It's very much focused on trying to make sure that the housing is where they need it the most. So right now, a lot of cities are focused on transit-oriented development. Like in Miami, I know they've got a big push for that kind of development in Los Mm -hmm. Angeles. And so we we have to go to where those cities and counties and states say they want to see the investments made in affordable housing.
1: So if you're going to do it, you hear Denver's looking to Build affordable housing. You you call up the housing authority or something and say, "Hey, we want to put a bid in," or like, or do you have to like go there and scout out and then put together a plan? Like, this is the this is the site we want to do, or or do you have to go and do you ask them like, where do you want to build, or do you just tell them where you want to build? Like, who uh, who, who it, dictates that?
0: Yeah, it's a little bit of both within our, our 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 pipeline, and that that's one of the things that I'm chiefly responsible for. We've got a mixed bag of of uh, a business in our pipeline. Some of it is. Excuse me, is organically grown, meaning it's projects that we go out, we look at the QAP uh, in a particular state and we go out and say, hey, there's a piece of dirt over here and we're going to go after that. We're going to get it under control. We're going to get it entitled. We're going to build 75 units of tax credit housing. So that's that's one piece of it. Uh, The other piece of it is projects. We've got more than 50,000 units in more than 35 states. So projects that are already in our inventory. They have been online for, let's say, 40 years, 30 years. So they're sort of ripe for redevelopment. Those are other projects. They're really just preservation acquisition projects. Those those are important projects in our pipeline as well, because those are deals that we own on the buy side and the sell side through through various partnerships. And then finally, we have a lot of work with public housing authorities. Seven or eight years ago, we were diversifying as a company, and so we sort of strayed away from doing public housing projects but as i talked about the rad program we realized that that program made a lot of sense for us so we got back into chasing a lot more pha specifically rad work so in those cases most of the time a housing authority has a request for proposals out either housing authority or city has a, a rfp out and we reply to those rfps i will tell you that we have been wildly successful over the last three years in terms of securing new opportunities through RFP based business. So a housing authority issues a RFP. We reply with our qualifications in a business proposal, they call us in for an interview, we get selected or not, we get selected, we sign a developer's agreement, and we get to work. So we, we've got, again, a mixed bag, probably 65% of our work right now is tied to public housing authorities. The balance is tied to just organically, you know, buy a piece of dirt or preservation.
1: Gotcha. So it is kind of possible to find, to kind of dictate policy somewhat to like different cities. Like, hey, you guys could use some affordable housing. Here's the benefit of it. Can you do that? Or?
0: Yeah. Well, we, we can talk about it with some cities, but but cities generally have a feeling for where they want to see their affordable housing. Uh, like in New Jersey, for instance, is a very specific set of uh, protocols for where affordable housing gets built in what cities so you know we we track that each city has an agreement with the state around how much affordable housing they have to build so we go to those municipalities we knock on their door we tell them who we are michael's organization we're lifting lives we've done all this wonderful affordable housing in our home state of new jersey and again they pick us or they move on to someone else but Generally speaking, we are out knocking on doors for our non-public housing work.
1: So it seems very relationship-driven, right? I mean, so I guess your background it seems like you had a lot of public. You know, you're George W. Bush. You know, you are nominated for this and that. And you're you're bigwig in this in this space, right, Milton? So I mean, it's, <laughs> having having you knock on a door means a lot, right? I mean. So um, is that part of it? Like having just these relationships and people trust you and you got a great reputation and um, that yeah, kind of gets yeah, the deals yeah. done?
0: That, that that certainly is part of it. Uh, I, I will tell you that sometimes folks call me our, our chief relationship officer because they'll come to me. Mill. I need to know. Do you know somebody here or there? I'm not typically a name dropper, but I, I tend to find ways to to get to know folks. I'm always encouraging uh, our, our staff to go knock on doors and it's time consuming. And and I spend a lot of time going to conferences and folks are always wondering, what are you doing at all these conferences? I'm networking, I'm connecting, I'm finding business opportunities for us. I'm oftentimes just simply planting a seed somewhere that will germinate in two years or three years. So I, I pride myself on, you know, figuring out who the decision makers are, who the stakeholders are in a particular community and trying to get to know them. So as an example, when I see that someone's been newly hired at an agency that we're doing business with, Mm. the first thing I'm thinking in my head is I gotta go see that person and I don't need anything from that person on that particular day. I just want that person to know who the Michaels organization is, know who I am, know who our our local staff is so that when you are chasing a project, five years down the line, two years down the line, they they will say, oh, these folks came to me. They had a half an hour conversation with me and they talked about what they do and how they do it and where they do it and and that's it. And I I will tell you that has proven itself to be a valuable investment of, of time for our company because it's the way that when we then reply to a request for proposals or we, we go out and we're talking to a mayor about a project, one of them, I can't tell you how many times someone has said, oh, I met you before, Mil, at a conference, or I met you before you came to visit my boss five years ago. And <laughs> I remember everything you told me about the work that you do. And I was always wondering, were we ever going to have an opportunity to work together? So it, it takes time to do that. Uh, and so that's why it's great that, you know, my partner in crime, Ken Crawford, he and I work so well together because it, it, it allows me to go out and build all those relationships while Ken is focused on, you know, continually running the inside part of our wow. business. And, you know, that 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 combination of leadership skills is something that John O'Donnell just sort of saw and he put us together in this way. And we've we worked very well in partnership that way for the last couple of years.
1: The yin and the yang.
0: That's what Ken always says. To oh, me yeah. <laughs> I always think that I've got the easy job. He thinks he's got the easy job. <laughs> we, we just got the right kind of personalities to work together. And, and it, again, it's not about Ken and Mill. It's really about growing our business responsibly and trying to make sure that we, we are focused on uh, two, two important principles around lifting lives, which is taking care of our residents first and taking care of the real estate second. And, and that's just something that I personally believe whenever we make decisions about projects, it, it always starts with, is it good for the residents that we're taking care of? We, we service and house more than 145,000 families or uh, individuals across this country, and, and they are so important to us. Like, say there's a global pandemic out there.
1: Like yeah. We're, <laughs> we're,
0: and, and our residents realize, and, and we realize that it's gonna be very difficult for them to pay their rent. It's, it's our responsibility to find ways to help them and to modify our programs and to modify our policies so that we can get our folks in the best position possible to, to go through this pandemic and, and, you know, one of the things that we're very proud of that are that the, during this pandemic, you know, we've got around 2,000 employees. So there's two or three hundred of us that are corporate employees that aren't working out in the field. But the vast majority of our people, 1, 17 1,800 people are out in the field every day taking care of our residents and taking care of our real estate. That is so critical to us. We think that that's what's allowed us to collect our rent levels rent at levels that that just at the beginning of the pandemic, we were very, very worried. I mean, mm-hmm. we were panicky. I mean, a, as you would expect. Uh, but our rent collections have been very consistently uh, achieving numbers in the low 90s. And you know, some months are hit or miss, plus or minus, but, but by and large, our residents have responded. And we think, and I certainly personally think it's because of the work that our people do out in the field, taking care of our residents, over communicating with our residents about all the things that we're doing to protect them in senior buildings, making sure that you know they're locked down properly, making sure that we're screening vendors and others that come in the building and trying to be as responsible as we can. And I think it makes a difference when you talk about a family, a low income family, mm-hmm. making a difference and figuring out, well, I got to pay my rent this month. And they're saying, "Gee, the folks at the Michaels organization are taking good care of me and my family and my kids or my seniors, and it really makes a difference when it comes to running our business." Is those those essential workers that we've got out in the field every day?
1: Do you also partner with local nonprofits to kind of work with the with the more, I guess, high, I don't know, the, with with the, the residents who maybe need that kind of support? Is that that part of like a developer's job or a man or owner's job of a property?
0: All encompassing. Yes, it is. So we've got a unique partnership with a national nonprofit called Better Tomorrows. Uh, they, They are a national nonprofit that we contract with to provide social services on not all, but many of our properties throughout the country. They do a fabulous job of figuring out the needs at a property by property level uh, basis. So, if if there's a property in I'll pick a state in Mississippi that they are providing services, and they realize that there's a lot of veterans that live on the on the property because it's near a, a Navy base or something like that, they they will then focus their programming on and services on how to provide veteran services, PTSD counseling, job training counseling, things like that. As opposed to if they're working in, say, rural California at one of our USDA properties, better tomorrows will do a needs assessment and they may figure out we need more English and second language classes. Mm. Our, our residents need to get to those type of programs. Or if there's a senior development in Atlanta, Georgia, I know we're working on one right now. Um, it, it may be more focused on activity programming every day, particularly during a, a pandemic. Like, how do you get the seniors out of their out of their units once a day to do a check in to get some fresh air, things like that. So, Better Tomorrow's puts us in a unique position to really care for our residents, and they, they've been in existence for I guess seven or eight years. And this isn't something that we just came up with in, in the '80s. Our principal, Mike Levitt, was really focused on the same thing, is figuring out how do we take care of our residents. And so he saw that, and he knew that it was important to make an investment in those families through social services. And there was a woman that worked for us, Jackie Jones. She's such a lovely person. Um, she's passed a few years ago, but she, she was such a lovely person. And Jackie's inspiration around taking care of the residents is something that Mike Levitt saw as being important. And he's always said to us, take care of these residents, and they'll take care of our buildings.
1: Yeah, that's, I mean, it sounds extremely rewarding in that regard. Um, So, I mean, are there any particular, you have a vast career, but are there any particular developments that really stand out to you? And if you could just take us through one of the processes of getting one of those completed.
0: You know, it's sort of like uh, your children. love them all, the, the same and I, I wish there were one, but but if I, if I could probably pick one, it, I, I pick it because I've, I've had to work on this project three different times at, at two or three different agencies. So or two or three different points in my life. Early in my career when I was at the Housing Authority, uh, and so the project is called Courtyard at Riverview. It's a project in South Philadelphia, my hometown. Okay. And it was the one of the first projects that I, I worked on when I was a, a real developer work, working for National Equity Fund and LISC. And so I, I worked on it at National Equity Fund. I worked on it in a different capacity because of a problem, strangely enough, when I was at HUD. And then at Michael's, I ended up working on it for the third time. So (laughs) I I put credits on it back in, I guess it was the the late 90s. I interacted on it again when I was at HUD. And then I had to put credits on it again, you know, two or three years. I I said to myself, let me see, I'm 54, 15 years, I'll be like 70. I hope I don't have to do it the third time. There'll be somebody that's, you know, young, full of energy uh, I would imagine that that's going to do it the third time around. But <laughs> but that, that's this a project that's been with me for many years. And and what's interesting about it is when when I did the project the first time, I interacted with a group of resident leaders, mm. and I, I remember every one of them had had things that they loved and hated about me and the project and everything. But but they always respected me because I, I was a young kid and I had a full say. <laughs> And, and they they gave me grief, but at the end, I, you know, they they saw that I had uh, the right intentions. And and then when I did the project again, just a few years ago in 2015, I was interacting with some of those same some of those same women, their their daughters or granddaughters, and they were saying, "Oh, I remember being at a meeting that you were at in 1999. I was in the corner." And my mom, grandma or my mom and I, whoever, they were giving you grief about something. I'm giving you grief about the same thing again. Though. <laughs>
1: you
0: know, that's fair game. So, you know, it, it, it's part of the process. But but it was just for me, it's just because I had to do it over and over again you know, twice. It's just been a wonderful experience. And and seeing how that one project changed the neighborhood mm-hmm. that was. It, that was slowly gentrifying, just slowly gentrifying. I'm not saying gentrification is good or bad. I'm not forming an opinion about that. But I think the stabilizing force in that neighborhood was the development that we did in the late 90s. Mm. And that, it's not the sole reason why that part of South Philly transformed, but certainly it contributed to it because uh, the Southwark development was a super block from 4th to 6th Street in South Philadelphia along Washington Avenue that that was, you know, crime ridden, that was all the bad things you hear about public housing. And the transformation made it so much difference, made it so much better. I remember one of the things we did, we planted trees along, I guess that would have been Fifth Street, no fourth, fourth street. We planted trees along that street. And you know, they were just little tiny little trees. But now when you look down that street, the whole street is tree lined and it looks like the fabric of of a wonderful community there, so it, it, it makes me proud.
1: It's got to be it's got to be very rewarding, especially in your backyard where you grew up. I mean, that's got to be great.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I grew up in the other end of the town, but it's, it's my hometown, so that that's why it's so important to me.
1: That's awesome. I mean, it seems like there's a lack of affordable. I mean, there's there's an affordability crisis in America, right? I mean, uh, I I live in the Bay Area. It's like <laughs> the most insane place in that regards. I mean, is there anything? I mean, do you see it? Affordable housing seems. Speaking of like more of as a, an investment, uh, you know, where money's flowing, is it, Do you see that picking up affordable housing, or is it like, are there does it ebb and flow as, as regards to the economy, or how, how? You know what I mean? Like, is uh, it-
0: well, well, he, here's here's the thing about affordable housing. There's, there's always going to be you know a need for it. That doesn't matter what part of the country you're in. You could be in, you know, Wyoming. You could be in San Francisco. You could be in Philadelphia, New York. Anywhere, there's going to be a need for affordable housing. Uh, but, but the thing to keep in mind when it comes to being an in investment is what, what what are you looking for? And, and there, there's all kinds of money chasing projects that are out there for sale. Again, we're a developer, so we are developing property. We, as a company, our typical philosophy is we're going to build something. We're going to hold it. And our intent is not to sell it in seven years for a specific return, like you would see on a a market rate building. Uh, Our intent is to buy it, hold it and do it all over again in another 15 years with new tax credits. But but what we on occasion we do sell. And I'm always fascinated when I hear about who's buying uh, there, there's a lot of money that are that that a lot of it is you know money coming from abroad. A lot of it is you know U.S. based money, pension fund money, and they are looking for specific returns. They have a specific hurdle rate, and th- those those investors and those buyers are typically buying at at prices that, quite frankly, they shock us sometimes because we know that you know it's challenging to to make these projects work long term but but here they are buying a ton of projects all across the country and they'll probably get some good returns out of them my my challenge and my question would be are they going to be good stewards of the housing Mm -hmm. and are they going to take good care of the families um there's a few cities i'll leave nameless who who I, i have said to them i said you have to have a preservation strategy because the projects that were built 27, 25 years ago, those properties are slowly creeping towards the end of their second compliance period, the 30-year compliance period. And they are in neighborhoods that have completely changed over 30 years. And when those neighborhoods change and when those owners that get to year 30 decide, you know what, I don't want to be involved in this regulated affordable housing business, I want to flip these to condos, mm-hmm. I want to flip these to rental units, market rate rental units and boost the rent up by you know two, three thousand dollars a door or something crazy like that. I think that's something for all of us to be worried about because that's going to slowly reduce the stock of affordable housing in a lot of countries, I mean, a lot of cities and counties. But that's all being driven by the fact that the rents are going higher in a lot of markets. So it's not our business model to to take something that's affordable housing and convert it over to market rate. Mm. But I know that there are owners out there right now that are, that are investing what I call patient money, and they are realizing that they can buy a property, they can get a little bit of cash flow over the next seven to eight, nine, 10 years. And then in 10 years, all the income restrictions will lift off the property and they can do whatever they want with the property. So th- th- there's a lot of that going on.
1: But, that was pretty much just, it's, you just waited out and then at some point its just you can do what you want
0: it's for, for again it's it's not every affordable project but mm-hmm. there was a small threat in certain markets so markets where the rents like you know you think about New York and you think about San Francisco where you said you were at um you know the, the, a lot of Cal, in California again where rents have gone up exponentially and here's this affordable housing project in the middle of say Berkeley that the restrictions for low income burn off in 10 years. I'm some smart investor. Maybe I buy it and hold it for 10 years. And it, it, again, something to worry about. And I worry about it because what that does is in those cities, it reduces the stock of affordable housing and it makes, it makes it more and more difficult for people to be able to get the work. If they work, let's say you work in San Francisco mm-hmm. and the, you know, 50 or, you know, whatever, let's say 500 affordable housing units in four more years are no longer affordable. Where are those 500 people going to live at? Are are they going to live two hours outside the city to have something that's affordable or are they going to have to move to another state? So that, that, when when I talk to business leaders and I talk to uh, county executives who are not exactly Big supporters of affordable housing. I always talk about how it connects to jobs and income. It, first off, it spurs a lot of development. Uh, other development around our development happen because we stabilize. Maybe it's a blighted asset. We, we stabilize it, so that that's one way it spurs you know economic uh, the economic engine. The the other way it spurs it is it it creates construction jobs. The same contractors that build luxury high rise buildings. Are the same contractors that work for me so let's say like in 2008 the economy goes to hell and we're looking for and you know this government's looking for shovel ready projects there's all these affordable housing deals that needed to get built and we were quite busy during that time taking in stimulus money working with housing authorities and cities and it got the it got the engine of the economy going again because to to an iron worker He doesn't really care or she doesn't care if they're working on an affordable project or a luxury project Mm -hmm. they're just working and so it's important that we connect the dots about what kind of jobs get created out there and then ultimately it's important that we connect the dots about if you have a a business community a central business district where are people going to live at that work there the best example is let's say there's another global pandemic let's say you're a hospital and your hospital is in a location where none of your employees can live within five miles of you, but you want your employees to work longer shifts and you want them to be able to get home, but they work, they live 70 miles away from where they work mm-hmm. because there's nothing affordable. That's that's a crisis for a hospital when they need to have their people work longer shifts. And for, for me as a housing professional and a thought leader, We have to make sure that people understand that affordable housing isn't just for people who don't work. It's for you know most tax credit housing in this country is for people who have jobs. So when when I talk, we're we're working in a municipality in northern New Jersey now. And when I talk to the the leaders in in that town, I told them, I said, you know, most of the people that are going to live here in this part of the state are going to be young teachers, police officers, firemen, they're going to work at the the local uh, hospital up the street. And it was interesting because the mayor happened to say to me, he said, you know what? Those landscapers, they need jobs. Mm-hmm. They, they need housing. And of course they do. They they need to you know live and work and play in the same communities that they do. So it, it's important that we as thought leaders connect the dots there.
1: You got me fired up, Milt. I'm going to get into affordable housing now. That's well, great. listen-
0: it's great, but, you know, it's, it's certainly not cyclical like, you know, what's going on during this pandemic where, hosp- where, where hotels and oh, yeah. luxury buildings are probably the starts aren't going to happen for us in the affordable space. Yeah, we, we got some bumps in the road, but I, I think by and large, you'll see a continuation of housing programs, you know, across the country.
1: Yeah, no. I see it as a recruiter. I mean, yeah, a lot of my clients doing market rate stuff are not hiring, and the ones that are in the affordable world are hiring. So that's great. And I, I I'd, uh, didn't even think of it, but yeah, I have. A, I know someone who lives up in like Sacramento and rents a room in the Bay Area during the week just so because to work exactly. I, as a nurse. So um, yeah, I didn't even think about that. What What are you? I mean, what would you recommend to someone? Well, you mentioned some conferences out there. That are there? What are like the best affordable conferences? You, to go to Uh, (laughs) a lot of them you don't have to be a conference promoter but are there any like Is there one or two that i like to stand at once
0: well i i got this sort of running joke with with our folks about going to conferences i i I personally try to only go to conferences where um where i can get business out of that conference meaning Mm -hmm. i should be buying somebody else a drink as opposed to somebody buying <laughs> a drink, yeah. So, so, if if you, it, to me, my rule is: if we're going to a conference, number one, are are we going to be in a place where we are talking to customers, people that we want to do business with? So, when you think about who our customers are on the development side, it's cities, counties, housing authorities. Those are the, many of the decision makers that we're working with. So, I spend a lot of time going to housing authority conferences. So the National Association of Housing and Redevelopment Officials, which is NARO, which is sort of a trade association for, for housing authorities. I tend to go to their regional and national conferences because I want to know housing authorities. I want them to know who we are. And, and I, I, although I go to several other conferences like NHRA and AHF and, and things of that nature, those are conferences where I'm typically meeting bankers, lawyers, and consultants who should be buying me drinks (laughs) because they want to work with me. I mean, I want to work with them too, but I think you get the equation. I get it. Uh, And and then because when when I came to this organization, uh, the Michaels organization, Bob Greer always said, when you go to a conference, you make sure everybody knows who you are. And the way you do that is you have to be engaged. You have to ask questions. And most importantly, you should be a speaker at conferences. Mm. So I am oftentimes uh, volunteering myself or other members of our organization to to be panelists, to be moderators, because that's how you uh, show your who you are. That's how you build your brand. That's how you build your rec, your your reputation is getting up there and talking about the work that you do or or we do as an organization, and and inspiring other folks to come in and join the group as well.
1: Well, obviously extremely knowledgeable and very passionate and it shows it's great. It's awesome. Um, So there's people say there's a person out there in high school or college that really wants to get involved and help their community and get involved with affordable housing. Do you recommend anything that they do over the next couple of years to, to move that vision forward for them?
0: Um, Well, you know, helping community is great, but as a young person wanting to aspire to be in real estate, you still have to feed your family. And I know that I'm responsible for making certain that some number of families that work for us at Michael's organization are are, are fed. And then I know our regional business leader in Atlanta has four or five people that work for him and he's gotta make sure he's taking care of those families. And, And that's how we've sort of built our organization is if each one of us within the Michael's organization does their job and focuses on taking care of our residents, real estate, and then the family that 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 we're all working for, it we'll, we'll do we'll do really well. So going back to a young person, uh, volunteer. Uh, I, I recently had someone call me and said, "I just want to learn the business, and I'm willing to put in some some sweat equity, and willing to sit down and talk with you about what you do." I, I, I'm always one to give out informational interviews sometimes somebody's just you know looking for the right opportunity they feel like affordable housing is something they want to do and i remind them that look you still got a family to feed so mm-hmm. this isn't a volunteer business <laughs> you you got to think about it you know so it's okay to make a living in the affordable housing business yeah. it's okay to do well i mean certainly as an organization we've done well uh but but It's great. It's better when they have a little bit of a passion for it because these, again, these deals are are very difficult. They're very challenging, and when you wake up in the morning and you have something that makes you feel good, uh, it's easier to go to work. It's different if you're just building hotels and you're like, I got to get up in the morning to build four hotels. It's like, "Yeah, (laughs) yeah, well but I just, I just don't have like the passion for it. I mean, yeah. I get it. And, 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 it's, it's really hard. I, 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 my, my, my sort of motivation is tied to two groups of, of people. One is the, the seniors that are out there. I always think about my grandmother who lived in affordable housing when she got up in age and the care that people took for her mm. in the development that she lived. And then and so for me, it's about the seniors. It's about taking care of our, our next gen, our, our older generation. And then it's also about taking care of the younger generation, making certain that those those kids that are just starting out in life, those newborns, that, that they have a good, solid, stable environment to learn. I mean, think about it. If, if there's a global pandemic, I know I keep talking about <laughs> it, but it's irrelevant. You know, if there's a pandemic and all of a sudden the kid has got to be in their house, a lot more than normal because yeah. it's, you know, it's the place that they got to eat at. It's a place they now have to get classes at. It's the place that their mom and dad are at. How are they going to be productive citizens if we can't provide them with a good quality place to start out life? And, you know, things simple things like making sure that there's, you know, electricity, consistent electricity and making sure there's internet in the house. And we don't provide all those things. But to me, it's, it's really about giving those young people a start in life that, that will go on. And, you know, it, it's important to us. I mean, it's important to us about giving back as well. Our, our scholarship foundation, Mike Levitt uh, through his foundation has given out, you know, millions of dollars o- over some number of years since the, the, the early nineties. And that, that's something that makes a difference as an organization is being able to give back. And, you know, we're, I'm proud to do it. Our organization is proud to do it, and and it, it really makes me feel good. And so as a young person, you know, again, I, I try to tell people, find your passion, find a thing that makes you get up every morning to to want to come to work, to deal with the difficult people and the difficult circumstances that you're going to find yourself in, in affordable housing development.
1: Well, it shows you definitely found your passion. So thanks, Milt. Uh, thanks. That was great. Are you ready for now? This is going to be a little hard. This is the hot seat. You ready?
0: All right, I'm ready. I'm all ready.
1: The Hot Seat is sponsored by KK Reset. KK Reset is an HR management and outsourcing consulting firm that specializes in helping organizations to reset their culture, structure, and path. They do this through services which include comprehensive consultation to identify gaps and opportunities for corporate training programs, HR services, and career mapping services. They've collaborated with nonprofits, startups, and academic organizations to protect them from liabilities Reduce turnover and preserve their brands. They have also collaborated with a number of my clients on the real estate front, who are not large enough to have their own in-house HR program. So they outsource it to KK Reset. KK Reset comes in, maybe sits on site a couple of days a week, and provides you know everything you need from an HR perspective for your for your firm. So it's a great uh, resource for those shops who just maybe it doesn't make sense for them to have in-house HR function. Um, so please check them out at KK Reset. Dot com k k r e s e t com <laughs> all right these are the five or so questions i ask all my guests so question number one any books you recommend whether related to affordable housing real estate life business you name it
0: uh i just reread probably for the 10th time uh seven habits of highly effective people good one and and so i i i got it sitting on my dresser and i just uh, and I Actually, I have it sitting in one of my bookcases, and I just happened to see it. I said, you know, I think I'm going to read that. And I, I've been stuck at home, so I've been doing a little bit of reading. So <laughs> yeah, that,
1: that
0: that's one I recommend. I think somebody gave it to me many years ago, and I probably lost the first copy, but I picked up another copy along the way.
1: Good one. Do you listen to podcasts? If you don't, I, I'm also now the pandemics, you know, we've been at home so much. I'm trying to find some new TV series too. So either podcasts or t- and or TV series that you would recommend.
0: Um, I don't watch a lot of podcasts. I will admit that. Uh, I have been watching probably a little more TV than I care to admit, but <laughs> right now I'm watching uh, a show called Fortitude. Okay. Uh, which is a cool show but but my my lifelong passion is really Doctor Who. So Oh, nice. I, I, I've seen every Doctor Who uh episode ever from the very beginning till today. So uh I am I'm I'm, I'm, I'm a, a guy that doesn't mind if I'm stuck at home and it's raining and I'm bored. I think I'll just watch a Doctor Who episode just because <laughs> me out for whatever reason.
1: That's awesome. That's a good one uh what do you like to do outside of work
0: uh i'm a busybody, so i i play racquetball and i cycle uh, i'm very social and, and and i also love to cook uh sadly during a global pandemic i can't go out and do all those things yeah. although i have been cycling a lot more uh during the pandemic haven't played any any racquetball because i'm well gyms are closed here in new jersey Mm. and even if they were open i don't think i would confine myself in a small court with two or three other people so i've just been playing i started playing pickleball not long ago Oh, nice i'm not that great at it and it just frustrates the heck out of me because i'm pretty decent as a racquetball player
1: do you got you have courts near you
0: got tons of courts near me and tons of friends that play and they they just sort of chuckled at me because they they, they see my frustration about I can't get any better at this game. Admittedly, I've only been playing like a month and a half, but it's just, you know, I, I got to do something to keep active and keep busy.
1: Sounds like a pickle. Uh, what advice would you give to your 20-year-old self?
0: Wow, that's a tough one to my 20-year-old self. Well, well not because, long I've ago. Always, because I've always been a saver, uh, I, I, I've, if it weren't myself, I would tell a 20-year-old, start saving your money uh, a nickel at a time. Uh, I, I would probably say enjoy life. I think earlier in my uh, my, my career, I, I focused so much on work and getting ahead. I didn't always have a time, a chance to enjoy life. But but as I've gotten older, uh, I've gotten, I always laugh about this. As I've gotten older, I feel like I've gotten more selfish because I only want to do things that give me enjoyment. And whether it's good food or good wine or being around my friends or going on vacation, I, I want to do things that are all about me. My, my two lovely kids are one's almost out of college and my mother, my daughter is out of college. So I kind of got them moving in the right direction. And now it's like, hey, dad wants to enjoy his life a little yeah. bit, too. And there's nothing wrong with that, and and I have a lot of pride in in helping my mom and dad out in Arizona, helping take care of them. That's something that I feel a great sense of pride when mom or dad says, "Hey, I'm thinking about doing something, and I don't know how much it costs." And I don't even tell them; I just send them something in the mail, and they're like, "What'd you send me that for?" I'm like, "Eh, "Because you said you thought you were wanting to do something, and I wanted to support you just like you did me when
1: I was, you know, 17 years old." That's awesome. That's great uh now what do you look for in hiring people whether it's not not necessarily like their technical skill set or even just like when you're doing partners on deals what kind of qualities do you look for in people
0: that's a great question i i I would tell you i i I like people that that have good communication skills because i'm a natural communicator so Mm -hmm. i like to talk to people i like to listen. Um, and, you know, in, in real estate, you, you certainly have to know the numbers. I wouldn't sit here and say I'm a numbers guy. As a matter of fact, I would say I'm probably the exact opposite. I'm more of a, a, a talker and a writer as opposed to somebody that's going to sit down and want to do an Excel spreadsheet. Uh, but but for me, I'm I'm always looking for somebody who I feel like I could go out and have a beer with. Somebody who um, and, and they don't have to come from my same socioeconomic background, mm. but somebody that is is comfortable in a setting where they're interacting with different people, uh, comfortable with themselves. They can laugh with themselves. They they enjoy they enjoy work. They have, have a passion for for, for their, their current job. I mean, uh, oftentimes when I'm talking to candidates about joining our organization, I always tell them, you know, we're like a family business. And they say, hmm, you're kind of big to be a family business. And I say, well, you know, we're like a dysfunctional family. <laughs>
1: because,
0: you know, we, we, Within our organization, like every family, you you fight with your brother and sister. Mm. But at the end of the day, if your brother gets in the fight, you're going to jump in that fight with them. Yeah. And so that, that to me, the, the emphasis isn't on dysfunction. The emphasis is really all about family. It's about the culture that that we've created at this organization. And will that person be good in in, in the culture, in the organization? And will that person also be good technically at the things that we're going to ask them to do?
1: Yeah, great answer. Well, Milton Pratt Pratt, Jr., co-head of affordable development at the Michaels organization. Thank you for sharing your story with us. That was great.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Love to participate.
1: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the TBG Real Estate Podcast. Please visit us online at tbg-realestate.com or on Instagram at tbg.realestate. Until next time, have a great week.